Hello, and welcome to Tidal Volume, a podcast focusing on the core concepts of pediatric pulmonology by Breathe Easy Pediatrics and the Pediatric Assembly of American Thoracic Society. My name is Melike Boskanath, and I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. I'm here with Dr. Yadira Rivera-Sanchez, who is an associate professor of pediatrics, and she is the primary ciliary dyskinesia center director at UT Southwestern. We are here today to talk about primary ciliary dyskinesia. So, Yadira, can you tell us about PCD? Primary ciliary dyskinesia, PCD, is a genetically heterogeneous rare lung disease which causes chronic otosinopulmonary infections and irreversible lung damage that may progress to respiratory failure. To talk about PCD, we need to spend some time discussing the cilia. Cilia are hair-like organelles that protrude from the cell surface into the extracellular space. They're expressed in various tissues, including the respiratory epithelium. So a disruption of this ciliary motility can cause chronic bronchitis and inflamed or infected sinuses. PCD affects the motile cilia. Many physicians confuse ciliopathy with PCD. However, not all ciliopathies are PCD, but PCD is a ciliopathy. I see. So um, how did you become interested in the cilia? Um, I mean, PCD. I've always been fascinated by cilia. Early in my fellowship, I became the primary pulmonary fellow to care for a very complicated patient with PCD who had been diagnosed later in life. In an effort to help her, I became very interested in the disease, but it wasn't until several years ago, back in 2016, when while attending an ATS session on PCD, I learned about the PCD Foundation and their efforts in improving the understanding and care of these patients. This is when then I started the process of becoming an accredited center. That's an incredible story. I guess it was meant to be. Um, and how common is PCD in pediatrics? This is an interesting question. Um, at the present time, it is considered a rare disease with a prevalence of 1 in 7,600 to 1 in 30,000. We think, however, that there are approximately 50,000 cases across the U.S. and Canada, of which only 2,000 have been diagnosed. For instance, when you compare PCD's prevalence to that of other genetic diseases such as SMA or Ehlers-Danlos, which each have a prevalence of 1 in 10,000, then perhaps PCD is not as rare as we think. Wow, that sounds like there's a gap in the number of diagnoses and the actual number of patients. So how do we diagnose PCD? Well, first you have to have clinical suspicion, but by following the guidelines for PCD evaluation criteria. These were published by ATS back in 2016 and include two of the following four criteria. Need for supplemental oxygen or positive pressure for at least 24 hours in a term baby with no other explicable cause. There are some patients that will have respiratory distress or tachypnea even without the hypoxemia, um, but this is anecdotal. The actual criteria does include oxygen or positive pressure. The second criteria is productive cough, which happens daily, year-round, and it is described as moist with an onset during infancy, usually less than six months of age. The third criteria is infancy onset of nasal congestion, which also happens daily and year-round before six months of age. And then the fourth criteria is any laterality defects. 
If your patient meets two of these four criteria, then he or she should be evaluated for PCD. For the ATS guidelines, the first diagnostic test, when available, should be nasal nitric oxide in patients older than two. I should mention here that the um, ATS guidelines, the published guidelines, include five years of age. However, recent data supports its use in patients that are older than two. If your nasal nitric oxide meets the cutoff criteria of 77 nanoliters per minute, then you obtain a sweat test to rule out cystic fibrosis. This since patients with cystic fibrosis can also have a low nasal nitric oxide. If your sweat test is negative and you confirm a low nasal nitric oxide with a repeat test two months apart, you then proceed to genetic testing. If genetic testing has a confirmed biallelic variant, you have a write-up your, at your diagnosis. If, on the other hand, genetic testing is not confirmatory, the next recommended step is to obtain nasal ciliary brushings for evaluation of ultrastructure using electron microscopy. If this test is not confirmatory, but your clinical suspicion is high, then you can say that the patient likely has PCD, but the diagnosis has not been confirmed. In patients younger than two, or if there is no access to nasal nitric oxide, the recommendations are to start with genetic testing and proceed with ciliary ultrastructure evaluation if genetic testing is not confirmatory. I see. Can you talk more about nasal nitric oxide and its role in PCD? So nasal nitric oxide was found to be very low in patients with PCD back in the 1990s. Then more recently, it was standardized as being at, at or below 77 nanoliters per minute in patients with PCD. It is a very useful screening test because it has a sensitivity of approximately 98% and a specificity of 99%. The pathophysiology, though, for why it is low in patients with PCD is currently not well understood. It is important to remind the audience that patients with cystic fibrosis can also have a low nasal nitric oxide. Since the phenotype in PCD can be very similar to that of cystic fibrosis, a sweat test should always be obtained in the setting of low nasal nitric oxide to exclude cystic fibrosis. I, I think it's relevant to mention here that chemiluminescent devices to measure nasal nitric oxide are extremely expensive, and few centers have this technology. What are the limitations of the available diagnostic tests? Unfortunately, and somewhat different from cystic fibrosis, none of the available tests for diagnosing PCD are perfect. Nasal nitric oxide is being used only as a screening tool, and as I previously mentioned, it should be followed by genetic testing or ciliary brushings for evaluation of ciliary ultrastructure. Genetic testing has a sensitivity of approximately 75 to 80 percent, and it is costly and therefore not always approved by insurances. I should mention here that this cost has significantly decreased in the most recent years. Similarly, ciliary ultrastructure evaluation using electron microscopy has a sensitivity of only 70 percent and requires a center with expertise in the preparation and interpretation of ciliary ultrastructure abnormalities. Additionally, electron microscopes are not available in every center due to cost and lack of expertise. There are other diagnostic tools such as high-speed video microscopy um, of ciliary motility and immunofluorescent antibodies, 
but most centers in the U.S. do not use these modalities due to limitations of tests and lack of expertise. Important to note, though, that in Europe, high-speed video microscopy of ciliary motility is the diagnostic gold standard in some centers. I understand. The classic presentation of Cartagener syndrome, cytosine versus and PCD, is a common board question in medical school and pediatrics. So what's the relationship between PCD and laterality defects? As mentioned earlier, when we were talking about how to diagnose PCD, any form of laterality defect is one of the four criteria for PCD evaluation. However, most patients, in fact, 75% of patients with cytosine versus totalis do not have PCD. Only 50% of patients with PCD have laterality defects. I think a brief review on cilia and laterality defects would seem appropriate at this time. Motile cilia are also expressed early in development within an embryonic structure called the node. In this node, they generate a leftward fluid flow that helps to create the left-right body axis. This leftward direction of the nodal flow may be explained by a posterior tilt of the cilia together with their clockwise rotation, ultimately arising from molecular chirality of their component proteins. While leftward nodal flow is absent due to recessive PCD-causing mutations, many of which affect important proteins of the ciliary cytoskeleton, then it becomes a matter of chance whether the viscera will take up the normal or mirror reverse positioning. Now, in PCD, the spectrum of cytos goes from cytos solitus to cytos inversus totalis and everything in between, including cytos ambiguous of different forms. Cytos ambiguous can be associated with complex congenital heart disease known as heterotraxy, but mild cardiac septal defects can occur with PCD. Looking at specific numbers, 12% of PCD patients have cytos ambiguous. It is relevant to note that 50% or less have cytos inversus totalis, but only 20 to 25 of patients with cytos inversus totalis have PCD. Other laterality defects like intestinal malrotation, interrupted inferior vena cava, or polysplenia may be undetected in PCD patients without other studies, the help of other more directed radiographic studies, such as abdominal ultrasound, spleen scan, or echocardiogram. There's recently a lot of interest in primary immunodeficiency and PCD. Can you tell us how PCD and PID overlap? The phenotype of patients with PCD and PID can be very similar. Some PID patients present with predominantly respiratory phenotypes similar to PCD and lack sepsis or a history of abscess, which could direct the physician to think about PID. It is relevant to remind the audience that standard immune labs may not detect these phenotypic variants of PID and that immune lab results may progress over time. Interestingly, when the DDMCC, which is the research arm of the PCD Foundation, looked at past PCD projects where more than 1,000 patients with ear, sinus, pulmonary symptoms were investigated for suspected PCD, only approximately 500 had definitely PCD, but 500 without PCD. When the data was stratified, 75 of these non-PCD patients had had PID genetic panels. About 43% of these patients had confirmed genetic or probable genetic etiology of PID. 
Given this similitudes in phenotype, many of the commercial companies that perform genetic testing have a combined PCD-PID panel. Why is it important to diagnose PCD correctly, and what are the long-term consequences of not doing so? Well, there are several studies that illustrate that declining lung function in patients with PCD occurs more rapidly than in the general population. There's variability in disease progression with patients who have PCD from inner dynein arm, central apparatus, and microtubular defects on electron microscopy, or CCDC3940 mutations, as these patients have a worse phenotype versus other EM or genetic forms of PCD, such as patients with outer dynein arm defects. Therefore, an early and accurate diagnosis will help with the identification and the surveillance data and closed monitoring, which will allow for directed management, which have the goal to decrease the rate of decline of lung function and an overall improved quality of life. Which other subspecialties do you work closely with? Given the high incidence of recurrent ear infections and sinus disease, which frequently lead to hearing loss, we work very closely with our ENT colleagues. Other specialties include immunology, given the overlap with primary immunodeficiency, cardiology, as these patients have a high prevalence of congenital heart disease, and also because they may be the referring providers when evaluating patients with laterality defects. Expectedly, genetics is frequently involved in the care of these patients for support interpreting genetic data as well as for counseling, either once the diagnosis has been established or for carrier status. Also, gastroenterology, um, especially for help with optimization of nutrition, and adult pulmonologists for transition of care. We also work closely with neonatology as patients may present to their practice first, and this relationship facilitates early referral and diagnosis. Can PCD be associated with other diseases or syndromes? Yes. As examples, PCD can coexist with other rare genetic disorders. Retinitis pigmentosa, which is a genetic cause of blindness due to retinal ciliary dysfunction, which is an X-linked disorder involving the RPGE gene. Also, oreofaciodigital syndrome, which is also an X-linked disorder involving mutations in the OFD1 gene. It involves mental retardation, craniofacial abnormalities, microcephaly, digital anomalies, and cystic kidneys. After we've established a diagnosis, how do we manage patients with PCD? And are there any evidence-based therapies? Pulmonary management in PCD focuses on airway clearance through daily chest physiotherapy. It is important to remember that unlike in cystic fibrosis, cough clearance is preserved, so airway clearance will be very beneficial. Daily cardiovascular exercise should also be strongly encouraged as poor exercise capacity is linked to decreased pulmonary function. Exercise also improves mucus clearance. Antibiotics, which should be chosen based on surveillance culture data, should be given for acute respiratory exacerbations and much like in cystic fibrosis used for two to three weeks. Most of these management guidelines, though, are based on other disorders with similar pathophysiology, such as cystic fibrosis and non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis. There is no evidence in the literature supporting the use of inhaled steroids or supporting eradication of pseudomonas, but theoretically, it makes sense to use inhaled antibiotics for pseudomonas and eradication should be attempted. Also, PCD patients should receive recommended vaccination. 
Annual influenza and pneumococcal vaccination are also recommended. In the first year of life, monthly um, seasonal immunoprophylaxis against respiratory syncytial virus can be considered for infants with PCD, and more specifically for inf infants with complicated respiratory courses requiring prolonged oxygen supplementation. There are other therapies that can be utilized, but because their use should be decided on a case-by-case -case basis due to either lack of data in PCD or other similar disease processes, or conflicting data when studied in PCD. Some of these include hyperosmolar saline, chronic suppressive inhaled antibiotics, and Dornase alpha in children with non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis or PCD. With regards to hypersmolar agents, although these agents help with mucus clearance, a meta-analysis reported unclear long-term benefits in non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis, and it has not been studied in PCD. There are no prospective trials of DNAs in PCD, but studies in adults with non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis show no clinical benefit. However, several case reports of DNAs in PCD suggest possible benefits when used for short and long-term periods. I should mention here that some studies, however, have showed worsening of symptoms with Dornase and bronchiectasis. When it comes to long-acting bronchodilators, in a limited study in non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis, they did not show any clinical efficacy. Regarding evidence-based therapies, azithromycin was studied in a randomized control trial where they treated patients with azithromycin three times a week versus placebo. The mean age was 18 years. The study excluded patients with pseudomonas who had been on 30 days of antibiotics in the past two years for PCD. The results, which were published in Lancet in 2020, show that patients who had received azithromycin had approximately 50% reduction in exacerbations over six months, as well as less pathogenic bacteria on sputum. I understand. Well, Idira, I know you worked very hard um, to establish the PCD center here at UT Southwestern, but why is having a PCD center so important? For many reasons, it gives patients access to high-quality diagnostics and therapeutic interventions because accredited centers are expect expected to follow consensus guidelines in caring for patients with PCD. As we try to better understand this disease, PCD centers allow for centralization of care and eventually the opportunity to participate from the newly created PCD registry. This information is used to assist healthcare teams to provide care to individuals with PCD drive quality improvement initiatives at care centers, and create PCD care guidelines. We hope to see more PCD centers established in the country and around the globe. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Rivera Sanchez for joining us today, and thank you all for listening to our podcast. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at titlevolumeatspeats at gmail.com. <laughs>